Well, the life of David is what we've been studying. And the life of David can be divided into three sections. In 1 Samuel chapter 16 through 31, David is running. He rises to prominence, but then he has to flee from a madman named Saul. In 2 Samuel chapters 1 through 10, David is reigning. He consolidates his kingdom and then expands its borders. Then in 2 Samuel chapter 11 through chapter 24, David is reeling, reeling from his sins and from his family failures. David is running, he's reigning, he's reeling. We look at the trials of David back in 1 Samuel. Tonight, we want to study the triumphs of David. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Now, when the death of Ishbosheth, Saul's son, and David's rival to the north took place, all of Israel then rallied to David at Hebron. We're told, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. This is the third time now David is anointed king. He was anointed by Samuel when he was a small boy. The tribe of Judah anointed him after Saul's death, but now all the elders of all 12 tribes of Israel now anoint him king over the whole nation. It's interesting, each time his sphere of influence expanded, he received a new anointing. The same is true of us. Whenever our influence expands, our witness for God, we need a fresh outpouring of the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. David was king for over 40 years. Now, let's say David was about 15 years old when Samuel anointed him the first time. He served in Saul's court, oh, approximately three years or so. Then he was on the run for another 12 or so years. That means that David spent, oh, maybe 15 years or so of preparation to sit 40 years on the throne. Often we bemoan the time of preparation, don't we? Oh, we think it'll never end. Can you imagine David out there on the wilderness running from Saul? Will this ever end? This is going on for years and years and years. We begrudge the time of preparation, but really when you think about it, David's prep time was a small price to pay for the privilege of reigning four decades. There's a new king now in Israel, and a new king needs a new capital city. If you notice on the map, Hebron was too far south to serve as a capital for the United Kingdom, for all of Israel. David needed a city more centrally located. And so he set his sights on Jerusalem, a city of the Jebusites. Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet above sea level. It sits on top of several mountains. Its climate is pleasant. It's easily defendable. It sits right in the middle of the promised land. And since Jerusalem had been a Jebusite city, 
been in Jebusite hands for over 400 years. It wasn't tied to any one particular Israeli tribe. This made it perfect to be David's capital city, the capital of his new kingdom. Well, the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking David cannot come in here. Understand the Jebusites thought that their city was unconquerable. Jerusalem was set on a steep hill called Zion. And on top of the hill, of course, it was surrounded by a high wall. Its men boasted that even the blind, even the lame could defend the city of Jerusalem because of its natural fortifications. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Here's how he conquered it. Now David said on that day, Whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. He shall be chief and captain. Therefore, they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And notice there the author inserts that little venomous comment. Did you notice that? He doesn't like how the Jebusites had insulted David. So he says, oh, the real blind and lame live in the city. They're the Jebusites that occupy the city of Jerusalem. According to the author, David hated the Jebusites. Sounds like he did too. David was smart. He knew that the city drew its water from a spring right outside the walls. And so he sent a man up the water shaft. First Chronicles 11 verse 6 tells us that this daring dude was none other than Joab. You remember Joab from a couple of weeks ago. Once inside the city, Joab went and unlocked the gates, and this allowed David's army to sneak in and destroy the Jebusites. It was a great victory, and it solidified David's hold on the land as well as Joab's position as general. We're told, Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David, And David built all around from the Milo, or the citadel, the tower, and inward. The Jebusite stronghold, the wedge that separated Judah in the south from the other tribes of Israel in the north, has now been eliminated. And it makes way for a unifying of the kingdom of Israel under David. And it also made David... For the conquering of Jerusalem was a turning point. Notice what he says next. So David went on and became great. And the Lord God of hosts was with him. Now once David solidifies his kingdom, the control of his kingdom, Hiram, king of Tyre, not a tired king, but king of Tyre. Might have been tired too, I don't know. But he wants to make peace. And so he sends cedar wood down to build David an elaborate palace. Lebanon, the cedars of Lebanon were world famous. And so Hiram gives this gift to David. Verse 11 tells us, Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons. And they built David a house, a grand palace there in Jerusalem. And so David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. David's years in the wilderness, his flight from Saul, had humbled him. 
And it helped him now realize that this sudden rise to power was not of his own doings. It was a work of the grace of God. We're told, and David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. In Jerusalem, David starts to grow a harem. And this could have been the result of peace treaties signed with neighboring nations. This was a common practice in those days. Whenever you would conquer a people, you would marry the other king's daughter. And, of course, that created a family situation between you and the rival king. And and the whole idea there was it would be more difficult to attack your in-laws, which may or may not be true, (laughs) depending on your in-laws. I hope you've never declared war on your mother-in-law. You'll probably lose. Well, also, more sons and daughters were born to David. Evidently, the palace life was more conducive for having babies and being on the run, being held up in caves. And so he, he grabs him some wives and starts having kids. Verse 14, now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nefeg, if you're having a baby in the next few months, maybe you can pick a name out of this selection. <laughs> Japhia, Elishama, now that would be a great name for your kid, Elishama. Iliad, and looks like elephant, but I know it's not that. <laughs> Elephilet, that's kind of a female elephant, an elephant. But these are sons, not daughters. Well, 11 sons were born to David in Jerusalem. Now, when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. And David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. David knows a battle is brewing. He readies his men for the conflict. Now, the Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Israel's ancient enemy, the Philistines, see that David has unified his once divided kingdom. And they realize that they need to attack before David's army grows any stronger, before his position expands. And so David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Notice David always inquiring of the Lord before he makes a move. (laughs) That's smart. Always checking with God. This past week we were watching the World Series, and one of the assistant coaches came out and the announcer said, oh, he's, he's not going to tinker with the pitcher's mechanics. This is just a checkup from the neck up. I like that. That's what I need from time to time, just a checkup from the neck up. Hey, hey, before you go off, do something rash. Will you inquire of the Lord? It'll save you a lot of heartache. Well, David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up. For I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David went to Baal Perizim and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore, he called the name of that place Baal Perizim. A name that means Lord of the breakthroughs. What a great name for God. Lord of the breakthroughs. Have you been beating your head against the wall lately? Have you been running around in circles? Have you been stuck in a rut? Have you been spinning your wheels? Do you need a breakthrough? 
Our God specializes in breakthroughs. He is the Lord of the breakthrough. Hey, what Satan dams up, God can break through. Our God is a divine battering ram. No fortification of the flesh, no stronghold of the devil can withstand the power of God's Spirit. And don't you forget it. Verse 21. And they left their images there, and David and his men carried them away. Now, the ancient armies would often carry their idols into battle. And when the Philistines fought David, apparently they dropped their gods. So they took them captive. Can you imagine what kind of a god gets captured? But the Philistines were not about to give up. Seldom does our enemy quit after one attack. We're told, then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Raphim. Now understand, this is the very same enemy. This is the very same strategy. This is the very same theater of conflict. This is the very same circumstances and time frame. If you faced this situation, what would you have done? To me, it's a no-brainer. You know, I've already prayed about this. I mean, let's not pray anymore than we have to. We've already inquired of the Lord about this. This is just the same deal all over again. Why would God answer me any differently this time than he did the last time? I would have assumed that God's answer was attack. But I would have assumed wrong. Thankfully, David didn't assume. He again acquired of the Lord. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord and he said, You shall not go up. All of a sudden, there's a different answer. Same problem, same situation, but God has a different strategy. You shall not go up, circle around behind them, and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching or rustling in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. For then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. God won a great victory, but through a different means. And if David had not been sensitive and inquired of the Lord, he would have missed it. Here's a tendency among us humans. We tend to look for patterns to mimic, formulas to follow, programs to adopt. Oh, we want a blueprint. We want a template that we can lay over a given situation and know exactly what steps we need to take to solve our problem. As Christians, we are particularly prone to this kind of thinking. We're always looking for the six steps to overcoming temptation. Oh, I need to hear the the 12 keys to being an effective witness. Did you know that even pastors do this? They travel to another church that's growing and they study its behavior assuming that they can learn the secret formula. There's only one problem. There is no secret formula. David was given two different strategies for the same set of circumstances. You see, rather than lead by formula, God told David to wait on the wind. David was told to circle around behind the enemy and wait for the sound of marching in the top of the mulberry trees. Literally, the wind blowing through and rustling the tops of the trees. 
The answer, my friend, was blowing in the wind. The answer was blowing in the wind. It was. The answer was in the wind, which was a biblical symbol of the Holy Spirit. If you want to walk in victory, if you want to be an effective witness for Jesus, if you want to win battles for God, Jesus doesn't tell you to buy into a program or a plan or a pattern. You need to follow a person. You need to wait on the wind and be led by the Spirit of God. Understand, God doesn't come in an elixir. God isn't doled out in a pill. God isn't wrapped in a package or condensed into a can. And He certainly doesn't come in a box. God is a spirit. And God is wild and woolly and does as He pleases. And following the Holy Spirit is like listening to the wind. No one commands the wind, do they? No one commands the wind. And no one commands the Spirit. We adjust to the Spirit and bend to the Spirit and adapt to His course rather than insisting on our own. Hey, walking with God, winning the victories is a matter of listening to the wind. Well, chapter 6 tells us, Again David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts. That word Lord means Jehovah, or in the Hebrew, Yahweh. Yahweh was the sacred name for God, who dwells between the cherubim. In heaven, God's throne is surrounded by two mighty angels or cherubim. You remember the Ark of the Covenant? It was a model of God's throne in heaven. And therefore, it too had those two carved cherubim fashioned on top of the ark. David's desire now is to move the ark from its temporary home in the house of Abinadab in Kirajerim to Jerusalem. Now remember what had happened to the ark, why it ended up in the house of Abinadab. Back in the battle of Shiloh, years, years earlier, the Philistines had taken the ark and they had placed it in the temple of their god, Dagon. You remember this story. But the statue of Dagon kept falling over and bowing to the ark of Israel. The ark became a Philistine hot potato. They started shuffling it around between cities. And everywhere it went, remember, Philistines, they broke out in tumors. We can be more specific. (laughs) Hemorrhoids. You remember that. Proving once and for all that disobedience to God is a pain in the caboose. (laughs) When the Philistines finally sent the ark back to Israel, it was mishandled by the Hebrews. You remember the men of Bathsheba, they let the curiosity get the best of them. And they opened up the ark in order to gawk at its contents. And according to the law of God, only the priests were allowed to handle the ark. Therefore, the violators were struck dead. Many people died in what ensued. And the ark was then placed at Kirajerim in the house of Abinadab, where it stayed for 70 years. Now, David, he has a heart for God. We know David. He loves God. And he wants to worship God. He has a heart for worship. And he knows that God's presence accompanies the ark. And he wants to live close to God. So his desire is to bring up the ark to Jerusalem to be with him rather than have it remain in the house of Abinadab. But David makes some mistakes. In fact, he repeats some mistakes 
that had been made before, both by the Philistines and by the Hebrews. Though his motive is pure, he mishandles the ark and the results are deadly. Verse 3. So they set the ark of God on a new cart. No, 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 no. Bad move. This was not God's method for moving the ark. These were not the procedures laid out in the law. You remember Moses said that the ark was to be carried on poles by the priests, carried by the priest, by carrying these poles, not placed on a cart. The Philistines placed the ark on a cart. This was a pagan method. Now here's a point, the point of chapter 6 that I want you to catch. It's not just our motive that matters, but also our methods. Did you get that? It's not just our motive that counts, but also our methods. You see, the church gets into trouble and spiritual death ensues when we start mimicking the world's methods and technologies and techniques. Just because a strategy is successful in the business world or in the corporate world, that doesn't mean it should be employed in the church. It's just as important that our methods are guided by God as it is our motives. Well, you see, they put this ark on a cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. On the hill is important, coming down the hill. And Yuza and Ohio, the sons of a Benadab, Ohio, lived right next to Indiana. They drove the new cart and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. The hill's important. They come down the hill. Stuff slides when it comes down the hill. Got that? Accompanying the ark of God. And Ohio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of firwood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums. Sistrums were like little cassinets. You know, they played with their hands. And on cymbals. In other words, this was a big worship fest. This was a day of worship. This was a Jesus festival. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, coming down the hill, ark started to slide. Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. With no regard to God's law whatsoever, David places this ark on a cart. It starts to slip. Uzzah reaches up just to steady it. Boom! And he drops dead. David is responsible for the disaster, but Uzzah ends up the loser. (laughs) Now, here's a story with a very powerful and a very pertinent message to the church today. Both motive and method matter to God. The church today has the same job as Uzzah of old. We are moving the message, are we not? We're transporting the presence. And the way we do it is as vital to God as the motive behind our actions. You don't move the message of the gospel like you sell used cars. 
You don't slap the hood and use crass marketing and put the precious gospel on a cart. I've seen people do stupid things in the name of God, terribly misrepresent God, and then excuse their carnal methods by appealing to their motive. We meant well. Our heart was in the right place. Uzzah's heart was in the right place, but his body dropped dead. Uzzah could have made the same claim. His heart was in the right place, but God was concerned by where he put his hand. Our methods need to be free from manipulation and self-promotion. Not just our motive, but our methods also need to be led by the Spirit. We need to be listening to the wind, not walking in the flesh. Well, David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day, or outbreak against Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day, (laughs) I would say so. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now initially, David was in the dark about the ark. He even blamed God for this outbreak against Uzzah. But over the next several months, his attitude started shifting. He realized that really, he was the one to blame. He was the one that had not obeyed God. He had treated God tritely, frivolously. God's will should always be done God's way. And David started to realize this. And so he tries again. This time, though, he researches his methods. Verse 12. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord, notice it's being carried now. It's being carried on poles the way God had said it should be. When they had gone six paces, that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Every time the priests walked six paces carrying the ark, they stopped and they made sacrifice. I mean, they're being safe. They're taking some precautions here. They're being meticulous in their methods. Verse 14. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might, whirling and twirling before the Lord, an emotional expression. And David was wearing a linen ephod, the garments of a priest. And so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting. David is into it. He's not dancing with the stars He's dancing with the Lord. The king is caught up in the emotion of the moment. His love for God. His desire to see God engulfed in praise and worship is motivating him. And as the ark comes into Jerusalem, David is praising God with all his might. He is dancing before the Lord. Now, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, David's wife, but also perhaps more importantly here, Saul's daughter looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord and she despised him in her heart. 
Michael was Saul's daughter in more ways than one. It's been said, don't marry a girl whose daddy calls her a princess if you don't plan to treat her like a queen. Michael was spoiled rotten. Like her dad, she only thought of herself and what would promote her own image. Her whole approach to life was to look royal and regal and dignified and kingly. David, though, was a man after God's own heart. He could care less if he looked dignified. He could care less what other people thought as long as God was praised. David forgot his image in his desire for praise. Hey, when it came to this kind of worship, Michael didn't have a clue. And so they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Now, this is not the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle was damaged earlier back in the battle of Shiloh. But this was just a tent that David had erected for the ark. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed and everyone to his house, including David. Then David returned to bless his household. Honey, I'm home. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said very sarcastically, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. What were you doing out there today, big guy? You were embarrassing me. You were embarrassing the throne out there shaking around and whirling around. And, and on and on she went. And Michael was ashamed of David's uninhibited worship. He wore a priestly robe, a priestly ephod, not his royal robes. He had taken off his kingly attire. He was wearing the robes of a common person, a simple priest. And in her opinion, the king had embarrassed the throne. He was more concerned with God than he was his own position. And so David said to Michael, It was before the Lord, notice what he throws in, who chose me instead of your father and all his house. How's that for a little dig at the in-laws? <laughs> to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Don't think of what your dad would have done, Michael. For if God had been pleased with your dad, he'd still be king. He's not, and I am. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this, and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. You know, it's sad to see a person who seeks to deepen their experience with God, expand their worship of God without the support of their spouse. That's sad. Like a bird with a broken wing trying to get airborne, it's so much easier with the help of that other wing, isn't it? 
Wife, be careful that you don't become a wedge between your husband and God. Husband, don't you become a hindrance to your wife's attempts to draw near to God. When a wife becomes a wedge, look what happens. Verse 23, Therefore Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Because of her disdain of David's love for God, Michael was sentenced to a lifetime of barrenness. If you don't want to experience a spiritual and an emotional barrenness, if you don't want to dry up spiritually, then stop resisting your spouse's attempts to worship God. Become a worshiper yourself. Together as a couple, seek the Lord with all your heart. Be like a David, not like a Michael. Well, chapter 7 begins. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar. But the ark of... And where did he get the cedar? From Hiram, remember. And the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. And, and David is being David here. He's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about the Lord. And he's thinking about the ark. And he's looking at his palace one day. He's looking out the window and he sees his little bitty tent holding the ark of the covenant. And he ponders, why do I live in this palace while the ark sits in a tent? The ark should have a permanent home. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Spoke too soon, though. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, What would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. For 400 years, a tent's been just fine with me. That's what God's saying to David. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Nathan had spoken too soon. It was not God's will for David to build him a house. But here's God's word to David. Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, speaking to Nathan, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And when you think about David's rise to prominence, what, what a track it was. From the sheepfold to the palace, what an amazing journey. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Hey, God is far more concerned about a dwelling place for His people than a dwelling place for the ark. He says, also the Lord tells you that He will make you a house. 
Isn't this amazing? David wanted to build God a house, but instead God says that it's his intention to build David a house. David's desire was for a temple, but God has in mind a dynasty, a house of kings that will rule over Israel forever. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. David won't build God's temple. The job will fall to his seed or to his son, Solomon. Solomon will build the temple. Verse 16, though, goes beyond the scope of Solomon. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. For how long? Forever. Your throne shall be established forever. The Davidic dynasty ended in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem. The Davidic ruler at the time, King Hezekiah, died a prisoner in Babylon. But the rabbis saw in verse 16 the prophecy of a future king or forever king. A king who would rise from the lineage of David, who would reign over heaven and earth forever. They called this eternal ruler the anointed one. The Hebrew translation is Messiah. Or the English derivative is Christ. Did you know that whenever you call Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, you're actually expressing our belief that he is the heir of God's promise to King David. That he is the recipient of what we just read about here in verse 16. And of course, this is why the genealogies in Matthew and in Luke become so strategic and so vital. Because they trace Jesus' family tree back to who? Back to David. And they demonstrate how he qualifies as the Davidic heir, and as the recipient of this covenant that God made with David. We've discussed several covenants now in Scripture. God made covenants or promises, agreements with Adam and with Noah and with Abraham, now with David, later with Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Remember, a covenant sets forth the terms by which God forms relationship with His people. And the Davidic covenant is perhaps the most strategic covenant of all. God's covenant with David tells us where to look for the fulfillment of all other covenants. For everything God does ends up under the rule of an eternal king, David's descendant, the one we call the Messiah, and the one we've identified as Jesus Christ. It all goes back to this covenant. We're told according to all these words and according to all this vision, 
So Nathan spoke to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. Well, David wants to build God a house, but God has promised to build David a house. And I love David's reaction to God's blessing, God's promise in verse 18. He says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? He's stunned. And yet, this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. I mean, David understood the eternal implications of this prophecy. A forever throne. Forever is a long time. He says, is this the manner of man, O Lord God? In other words, I've never met anybody who loved me like this. This is not like, this is not how men love. This is not how men bless others. My, oh my, I try to do you a favor and instead you bless me forever. Wow. Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. And David ends up speechless. He's blown away. Remember, this is Israel's psalmist. This is the great wordsmith, the lyricist of the Psalms. And yet he is speechless before God's grace. And if you've ever tasted God's grace yourself, you know it's a common reaction. In the rest of chapter 7, David recounts God's mercies on Israel and he sings a song of praise. He says, For your word's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name, and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land, before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations and their gods. Israel's a unique nation. No other nation plays such a pivotal role in God's program. For you have made your people Israel, your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. Now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. So let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. And let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it. And with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. Well, in chapter 8, The military triumphs of King David are listed. After this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines, those to the west, and subdued them. And David took Methag Amma from the hand of the Philistines. And then he defeated Moab, the nation to the south. 
forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death and with one line, those to be kept alive. We don't know how it all played out, but obviously David drew a line in the sand. And so the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadazir, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. This was a victory in the north. David took from him a thousand chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. Also, David hamstrung all the chariot horses. And all you horse lovers, let's hear it together. Oh. But hey, he didn't want to have to fight this battle again. And so that's why he hamstrung the horses, the chariot horses. Except that he spared enough of them for a hundred chariots. I suppose that just kept the post office going. When the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadazir, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. You see, the Syrians had jumped in to support the losing side. They paid a dear price. And you know they're making the same mistake today, aren't they? (laughs) They're the ones jumping in to try to support Hezbollah. They've done it again. They've chose the losing side. Verse 6. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. The Lord preserved David wherever he went, and David took the shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadadazir and brought them to Jerusalem. Also from Betah and from Barathai, cities of Hadadazar, King David took a large amount of bronze. When Toai, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadazir, then Toai sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him, because he had fought against Hadadazir and defeated him. For Hadadazir had been at war with Toai. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold, and articles of bronze. Toai is a smart guy. And he allies himself with David, lest he become the next victim here. King David also dedicated these to the Lord, along with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued, from Syria, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, from Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadazir, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. You're getting the impression here that, that David had a sweep. I mean, he was winning all the victories. And David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt near the Dead Sea. He also put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons and all the Edomites became David's servants. In other words, David put all these fortifications down in the southern boundaries to protect him against the Egyptians. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And twice now we've read those words. Obviously, God's blessing and God's protection was upon David. Well, verses 15 through 18 list the key members of David's administration, his cabinet members. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder, or literally the rememberer. He was sort of the official state historian. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests, or Kohai priests. 
Sariah was the scribe, the secretary of state. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over both the Cherethites and the Pelethites, who sort of made up the FBI, you know, David's secret service. And David's sons were chief ministers. That was his cabinet. Now, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, when David left Saul's court for good, he promised Jonathan, his friend Jonathan, that he would be kind to Jonathan's descendants. Well, now in chapter 9, David keeps his word. Now David said, Is there anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. Then the king said, Is there still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? Now I want you to remember chapter 4, verse 4. Remember what we were told. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, the news that they had died, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell, she dropped him, and he became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. The nurse dropped the baby and crippled him. His name was Mephibosheth. This was the only remaining heir of Jonathan. And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabir. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabir. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Mephibosheth was afraid of David. I mean, think about it. He was Saul's heir to the throne. And Mephibosheth feared that David might consider him to be a rival and seek to eliminate him. Then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Here is your servant. And so David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore you to all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. What a turn of events. From elimination to exaltation. By the way, is that not exactly what God has done for you and me? Elimination to exaltation. How long were you a rival to God's throne? How often have you sat on the throne of your heart instead of yielding your life to God? You should have been eliminated. But instead, God has shown you kindness and has given you an inheritance and has invited you to his table and has made you his son. You've gone from elimination to exaltation. Guys, we are all Mephibosheths. Can you say it together? Mephibosheths. Can you say, I'm a Mephibosheth? You are? Hey, you're lame. You know that? You are. You know, spiritually speaking, you're all, I'm, I'm sorry to say it, but you're all just lame. 
We've all experienced a fall, haven't we? When Adam sinned, we fell from God's ideal. And we're now crippled in our walk. Think too, Mephibosheth was blessed on someone else's behalf. Notice that. David blessed Mephibosheth because of Jonathan. And now God shows favor to you on account of someone else, doesn't he? On account of his son, Jesus Christ. And God even invites us to his table. He treats us as his own. We have been adopted into God's family just as Mephibosheth was adopted into David's family. And oh, how we need to respond like Mephibosheth. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? You get the impression he felt unworthy? I think this is how you and I should feel in the light of the riches of God's grace. Dead dog humility is our only response. Well, verse 9 tells us, And the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and, and to all his house. You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Mekah. And all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. And you too remain lame, and yet God continues to choose to bless you as one of his own children. Isn't that amazing? Well, chapter 10. It happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. David's into showing kindness. He's a good guy. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. Now all David's trying to do here is send his condolences. He sends his servants down there on a mission of mercy. And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanun, their lord, Do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search out the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow you? My, be careful who you listen to. This is bad advice. Therefore, Hanun, big mistake now, he took David's servants, shaved off half of their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and then sent them away. Now, we're not told a lot about this, but it's my hunch that this took place on the Feast of the New Moon. <laughs> Just my hunch that this coincided with the Feast of the New Moon. Hey, Noon, he cuts the seat out of their pants so that their buttocks show, 
and they all streak home to Israel. I mean, he insults the delegation. He sends them home disgraced. In other words, it's a declaration of war. How could it be anything other than that? Now, when they told David, he sent to meet them. I guess he wanted to see it for himself. It was a funny sight. Because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown. And then return. And I imagine, soap your pants while you're at it. And when the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, and the people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Makkah, 1,000 men, and from Ishtab, 12,000 men, we made a mistake. David's going to attack us for this. And so they hired 43,000 mercenaries. Now, when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. Then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah, Bethrehob, Ishtab, and Makkah were by themselves in the field. I mean, the Ammonites and the mercenaries, they, they were creating two fronts. And when Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, that he might set them in battle array against the people of Ammon. And then he said, if the, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. And so Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. Now when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered together. Then Hadadazir sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river. They're calling for reinforcements. And they came to Helam, and Jobach, the commander of Hedadazir's army, went before them. They have called for reinforcements east of the Jordan. They rallied the Syrian juggernaut together to stop David. Now when it was told David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan, and came to Helam. And the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David and fought with him. Guys, this was a strategic battle. The Syrians have drawn in their allies from the east, win this victory, and it will establish Israel as the world's superpower. This was a huge battle. Then the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians and struck Jobach, the commander of their army who died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadazir saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. And so the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. And so David has won a few victories, hasn't he? Won a few victories. And so he decides to take a little vacation. And chill out a little on the balcony. And just kind of look out over the landscape. 
And all of a sudden, his troubles start. 